Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with James Farwell. James is a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute. James has published several books, including most recently, The Corporate Warrior, Successful Strategies for Military Leaders to Win Your Business Battles. This book includes interviews with top military strategists on leadership that are relevant also to the business and many other domains. So thanks for joining me on the podcast today, James. Thanks, Jessica. It's a pleasure to be here. Turkey has been a really fascinating player. So we've seen Turkey trying to balance between maintaining good relations with Russia, but also obviously Turkey is a part of NATO and has interests as well in that regard. What are Turkey's key interests vis-a-vis the ongoing war in Ukraine? Turkey needs to be viewed first and foremost as a nation that sees itself as a primary player in the region. And much of what President Erdogan does is aimed at establishing that. It competes with Iran, uh, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia for the premier uh, role in, in the region. And so he therefore calibrates his politics to play a balancing role between all the powers so that it can leverage one side against another in order to boost its own standing. Turkey has tried to play a sort of a brokering role between Ukraine and Russia. Do you think that Turkey will play an increasingly important role as a broker between Russia and Ukraine? Certainly, that's what uh, Erdogan would like to do. And I don't see any reason why he shouldn't be able to achieve some success in doing that. Russia has taken such heavy criticism for blockading the export of Ukrainian grain that it was really forced to back down, partly because Russia is trying to extend its influence in places like uh, Africa, which depend upon those exports. And so from Putin's point of view, it's not so much his relations with the West that matter, but he doesn't want to undercut the efforts that Russia is making in in Africa and in other places. So Russian interests are served by uh, allowing Erdogan to try and broker some kind of agreement that allows for the export of the grain. And of course, it started to happen. And do you think that that might also involve other areas? So we've seen some attempts in the past from Turkey to try to also get involved in brokering more political negotiations between Ukraine and Russia. Do you think that that is a role that Turkey is uniquely situated to play? In my opinion, much less so. What we've got going on in Ukraine, no surprise, is a real war. And uh, that is going to be decided on the battlefield. I don't think that uh, Turkey can play a significant role in bringing uh, about a resolution to that. Nobody knows what the resolution would be like, but it's hard to see how Turkey plays a major role in uh, helping to shape that outcome. Mm -hmm. And then we also have an interesting situation with Russia's involvement in the ongoing civil conflict in Syria. How do you see the influence of the war in Ukraine on the conflict in Syria? That's a really good question. The problem that Russia has is that it has expended so many troops and so much of its resources in Ukraine that it has weakened its capacity to have the uh, strong influence that it has had in, in Syria. 
its intervention in Syria needs to be viewed first and foremost as an exercise in information warfare. It was aimed at enhancing the prestige and standing and influence of Russia in the region and the contrast with the debacle that Russia has gotten itself into in Ukraine could not be more stark. Russia has had to withdraw some of its, you know, on the ground support from Syria due to being so overstretched in the war in Ukraine. Do you see that this might actually impact the stability of Assad's regime? No. While we don't know to what extent the Ukrainian conflict might weaken Russia's capacity to help Syria, I also think that it hasn't committed so much of its resources that it won't continue to be a player in support of the Assad regime. It's very important to Russia that Assad succeed in in Syria, and I think it'll do whatever it takes to bring about that result. Mm -hmm. I'm very interested to talk about your book. Can you give us some flavor of some of the key lessons for leadership that came out of all those interviews that you conducted for that project? Sure. The the book, as you pointed out, uh, is rooted in interviews with top flag officers to understand their notions of strategy, leadership, values, crisis management, cyber. And it applies those lessons to organizations and to uh, and to business. It also talks about them somewhat in the context of military operations. I think that the key lessons that one has to learn in developing a strategy are as follows. First and foremost, you have to know what it is that you want to achieve. You have to be able to define success. You have to define what winning is. And that seems like a blinding glimpse of the obvious, but when we went into Iraq and Throughout the period that we were in Afghanistan, the West did not have a a definition of success or a cohesive strategy that supported what success would look like. The second thing that I think you have to do is that once you have that, you then develop strategies, operations, and tactics and metrics in order to achieve these goals. There's so much that goes into all of these. You need to be able to understand the strategic situation on the ground from the point of view of the people who are stakeholders, the people who are affected by your strategy for business that would be consumers in a military context, it's people who are affected by it. Very often, the U.S. and the West engage in what we call mirror imaging. We assume that people around the world have the same values and worldview and desires that uh, people in the West do. And that's just simply not true. And uh, experience has really borne that out. So you really need to have a very detailed understanding of the cultural, political, economic, historical, and other factors that uh, define a culture or a society or or a state. You need to understand uh, how to get people who are your, whether it's consumers or people in a military situation, uh, who are your target audiences, whose views and opinions you want to influence, who support you want to get, or for those who may be against you, whose opposition you want to neutralize, you need to understand how to get them interested in what you're doing. You need to develop a clear-cut rationale that explains how what you're doing benefits them or at a minimum does not hurt them so that they don't get in your way. You need to have a very clear view about what the stakes are. You need to define the stakes for people. What does it mean uh, for you to use this product or to achieve that particular 
military goal. Let me give you a good example from the book. There is a, a theory about uh, business development called blue ocean strategies. If you're going into a marketplace in which there's a lot of competition, you look for a niche in which there isn't any. A good example would be there's a uh, athletic company called Under Armour, which took a look at the sports apparel industry and saw that Nike and Adidas and people like that had a big share of it. But what they did not compete for was the uh, undergarments that athletes who run a lot can absorb. So they created a, an athletic garment that was very successful and went into a new part of the industry. Part of the book deals with crisis management. And I would that's a complicated thing, but I would say the most important thing about crisis management falls into two categories. Number one, get the facts straight. Number two, be the first one out there with the truth. And there are almost no exceptions to those two precepts. If you've got the facts straight, then you're able to deal with news coverage. And by being truthful, you maintain your credibility, which is very important for military or a business organization. Have you been looking at what's been happening in Ukraine with these ideas in your mind as well? Like I know that your book is in some ways applying this for, you know, everyday leaders in organizational contexts. But have you been looking at how some of those lessons might apply to the sort of leadership that we're seeing, maybe from Zelensky, from Putin, or what we're seeing happening in the information domain as well with this conflict? Yes. And in fact, the, the book uses a lot of military examples as a point of departure to explain how you can apply these to the business world. The war in Ukraine is armed conflict, but it's also information warfare, uh, which is the use of information and electronic technology to conduct uh, information operations in order to influence attitudes and opinions, to create military deceptions, to take control of the narrative and to unite people behind you and, and to create momentum. Zelensky's been really successful in that. It's really an interesting thing. In my book, I talk about the importance of values and culture and leadership, that the most successful companies, the most successful military leaders are those who are perceived as uh, doing good things. In business, it's improving the lives of consumers, in the military, it's taking care of the forces and providing clear leadership so that you can rally your forces behind you. It's been said that battles are, are won in the heart. And I think that that's, that's true. They may be fought on a battlefield, battle spaces, but you have to have leaders who can, can inspire people, uh, whether it's Eisenhower in World War II, Charles de Gaulle in, in France, Patton in World War II is a really good example. One can find uh, other types of things. Stanley McChrystal in Iraq uh, certainly met that, that criteria. And uh, Zelensky has, has really done that. And you know, until you put somebody into, a, as it were, a trial by fire, you really don't know how they're going to, to do. So Zelensky was a comedian. He was a lawyer who went into show business and almost was an accidental president of Ukraine because people were so fed up with corruption. Uh, we think in, when we think of the term oligarch, we think in terms of Russia. But the reality of it is that Ukraine has been dominated by about 18 oligarchs uh, for much of its recent history. And corruption has been a huge problem there. So nobody really knew whether or not Zelensky, who was viewed as sort of a mediocre leader until the war broke out, uh, would measure up. Well, it turned out that when the chips were down, he really did 
measure up. He showed enormous physical and personal courage. He stayed in the president's uh, offices in Kiev when Russian troops uh, mounted attacks on it. The second day after the invasion, he famously went on camera uh, with members of his cabinet and in very simple terms said, we're still here. We're not going anywhere. We're going to fight and we're going to win that. And that's how you unite a nation behind him. And he's done that very well. He leaves the military operations to his military commanders. And he focuses on boosting morale, ensuring domestic unity, and arousing support internationally in supplying arms and providing political support. And I have to say that I think that he's done a, a masterful job. He's also done something very smart, which is that a lot of people think that the war is about democracy. And he has understood, as Winston Churchill did in World War II, as John F. Kennedy did during the Cold War, that the value that matters is not so much democracy, which is a process, but freedom. And Zelensky has said, we stand for freedom against tyranny and autocracy. And that has become the rallying point for national and international support. And you have to do the same thing in, in business. The, uh, the most interesting that I saw is Nike. Nike overarching theme is that you can improve your life through sports. But its more specific themes are what I would call the hero sacrifice narrative that it uh, proposes. We are all in our lives our own hero and our own villain. Let's say you're a runner and you've decided that you want to run a marathon. So you start off with a lot of enthusiasm. You get out there and you start running. But then winter comes along and it's cold and rainy outside. The alarm clock goes off at six in the morning. And the question is, are you going to get up and go work out or are you going to go back to sleep? And that's laziness. There's the villain in us, which you have to overcome. And Nike's point is we all have within ourselves the capacity to overcome our weaknesses and in so doing, we can make ourselves the heroes of our own narrative and become champions. This narrative is articulated across different cultures and different countries with equal brilliance. It's imaginative, it's inspiring, it's emotional. And it doesn't shy away from uh, making the point that success is the product of, of vision, hard work, and, and discipline. You have to remember that while reason persuades, emotion is what motivates. And that is true in war, and it is true in the business world. And so you need to develop narratives and messages and themes and stories that, as I say, appeal to emotional intelligence so that you can, you're not trying to get people to change their beliefs, you're get, trying to channel the beliefs that they hold and their values into your narrative. That's fascinating. You know, as you said, wars are won in the heart whilst they might be fought on the battlefield. Thank you so much, Jane. I'll link to that book in the show notes for listeners who'd like to find out more. I appreciate you being with me on the podcast today. Well, thank you. It's been an honor to be here and I appreciate very much the invitation to have been a part of this. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music. Mm -hmm.